Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. So originally I thought, I was like, oh, you know, it's a great opportunity to talk about what Hodea was talking about, about, you know, the ways in which even, you know, the kind of the count, uh, counting is, is um, fungible, it's flexible a little bit. But I think the bigger question and the bigger topic I mean, that's something we can also talk about. But um, the bigger topic is about trust. And I mentioned before, the Talmud in Masechet Ketubot says, you know, a man should trust his wife when it comes to her count of her days, of her nida, her nida count. Like, that's not the husband's responsibility. Because the, the conversation in the Talmud, I'll just put it up on the screen briefly. Um, so the conversation in the Talmud is about, you know, a case in which a man... You know, if a man has sex with his wife when she's in Nida, and so he says, well, what are the circumstances? You know, if he knows she's in Nida, he should abstain. And if he doesn't know, he should rely on her, right? It's, you know, he should trust her to count her own cycle. Um, you know, and that's based on the, the language of the verse, Visafra la shivatsyamim. She should count for herself seven days. La le'atzma. She should count for herself. Um, and, you know, the the idea that Amir is kind of keeping track and now judging, you know, you said Amir is very judgmental. He's also very, I mean, he has not demonstrated his trustworthiness all the time. And now he's also not trusting his wife, even though she's not, has not done anything to violate that trust. Um, I think it's just telling about the relationship, but there's of course like the, um, the component that relates to Jewish law as well, where even though often, you know, there are reasonable complaints about the way that Jewish law is sort of geared towards men. In this case, the Talmud is pretty clear that, you know, it's a women, it's a woman's responsibility to be keeping track of herself. And like the husband is not supposed to be kind of butting in and like trying to, you know, no, you counted wrong. But like, no, that's not, like, she knows her cycle. She knows her body. That's like, you know, let her take care of herself. Um, and that's kind of the way that Jewish law for the most part, um, takes this question with the exception of one position of the schlop who talks about how he would make his wife count out loud in front of him um, when, you know, every night. So, but the schlop is a unique exception there. Um, okay, I saw Renee. Renee had a question and then Rabbi Shatz, I'll uh, turn it over to so you. So my question is, is can, can you assign, like I know it, it's not Amir's responsibility, it's hers, but let's say she... She knows herself as being somebody who's, uh, you know, a scatterbrain or whatever, can't keep track of things in general, in her general life uh, living. Is it okay for her to say to her husband, I'm, assi- I, I'm giving that position of counting over to you? Just like you might with Shiva. I mean, not with Shiva, with uh, saying Kaddish. Yeah, so... However, I mean, she, not that they're compared, whatever but. she's, what, however, it will be most helpful for her to keep track. If that's her husband keeping track and saying, "Okay, today's day two, and she says, "Okay, got it," that's fine. It's right. It's just that he shouldn't be butting in and saying, "Ah, I think you counted wrong." Like, yeah, that's um, again, this is like one of those rare places where the Talmud is uh, is kind of like. No, let a woman take care of herself, you know. There's and also- the counting can vary, right? The counting can vary. Like, not everybody obviously has period for the same length of time. So when someone starts counting, it's not like a, a black and white rule that it has to be seven days. 
Well, so that's seven and seven necessarily. It could be two and seven. So, so, so typically it's five and seven. And that's what Hodaya was talking about. Hodaya was saying, oh, I took a class in college um, about like fertility and stuff like that. And like, there's a lot more flexibility, um, which is true to an extent. So essentially the way that halacha ends up being, you know, sort of codified is that generally speaking, it's universal that five days, then a woman does a hefsek tara to make, which is a, a, a check of her body to make sure that there's no blood. And then after that, then she counts seven days. So it's five plus seven, five, then you check, then seven. Um, Hodaya is right in that there's for women who have a shorter cycle and who or who bleed for a shorter amount of time, there is some degree of flexibility. Basically, the fifth day is pretty easy to knock off and to go from five and seven to four and seven is pretty easy. Anything beyond that becomes a lot more complicated um, is like the, the short version of that. But even if a woman bleeds two days, still almost almost always, the, you know, they're going to say at least do four plus seven. Um, and, and then everything beyond that is sort of like personal sock, personal uh, answers that won't be published. You know, the rabbis will say, I'm giving you this permission personally, but I'm not going to publish it anywhere and don't spread it. Like anything beyond four plus seven is essentially that how it works. It's like based on a personal situation, the rabbi talking to you know the woman and her doctors and so forth and figuring out what's going to work. But then but something that they're not going to spread beyond that particular case. It also very often has to do with if you if your body does that always. So if you've always had a body that, um, and this is part of we're going to be we're going to be taking a Hilchot Nida class at Temple Beth Am, so you can learn more about this in August. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but if your body always has a period for only three days or only four days, it's easier if you're going to a Yoetz at Halacha or a rabbi or someone for them to say, okay, this is always the way your body does this. It's not like in April, your body, your body decided to have a shorter period. And so now we can give you this leniency um, for this month. But as Rai Pernick just said, for the most part, unless unless there's like an extenuating circumstance or the rabbi feels like it's okay based on either your body or based on um, the, the experience that you're having, whether it's to get pregnant or in terms of your sex life, um, that for the most part, they'll keep it to four as being the shortest it can possibly be. It's also different from the, and I'm not going to get too much into this because again, there's just, there's a lot around this. Um, and if you're more interested, you can take the class, um, where two people who are much better at this topic than I am will be teaching. Um, but, uh, but there, there is a discrepancy between the Torah and then where it falls in Halacha. And so the conservative movement actually has allowed for women to uphold Hilchot Nida according to the the actual law in the Torah, as opposed to in the Shulchan Aruch, based on exactly that, um, that I think, I guess Rabbi Pernick is showing us, um, that uh, in terms of like your body and the actual, the actual um, uh, experience, not the word I'm looking for, but of, of having a period for every woman is, is different. I don't know what you're showing. But. I'm showing just the beginning of what I had before, right? So, so Leviticus 15 in different places, right? So first in 1519, it says, right? So this is a typical 
cycle, um, you know, that she is, in, you know, in a state of Nida for seven days. And then afterwards, she goes to Mecca. So that sort of Torah level Nida, regular Nida, is seven days period. At the end of seven days, you go to Mecca. Then later on in the same chapter, it talks about um, what we call a Zava, a woman who has a discharge for many days, not at the time of her regular cycle. Um, then we say for in that case, then she's impure for as long as she's bleeding. And then when she finishes bleeding, then you count seven days. And then afterwards, she becomes pure. Again, a longer conversation. But halakhically, we treat all Nida cases as this, the Zava case, and not as the Torah's Nida case. As Rabbi Shatz is saying in the conservative movement, I guess they've said, like, you can keep Torah Nida and not Halachic Nida, which means seven days versus 12 days. Yeah, which you can see. I just put it in the chat if you want to read it. Um, Rabbi Avram Reisner uh, put out this tshuva in 2006. Um, it is not a tshuva that most people read or know about because in the conservative movement, part of the reason why we'd be taking this class is that Hilchonida is not something that is widely discussed or, um, or even practiced. And if it is practiced, often you're finding your guidance from someone in the orthodox movement as opposed to the conservative movement so uh we're trying to change that and by we i mean i um <laughs> debbie, debbie and steve <laughs> not sure there's a we there but i'm trying so i was um i noticed that when amir spoke to this rabbi the rabbi said that the woman is only responsible for three things hala counting and lighting the shabbat candles and yeah. you know that's not a lot I would have thought he would have said kashrut. He did not. But when I talked to my cousin, who he was, he was like 18 at the time and very, you know, strong in his Chabadness. And uh, I said, well, what's in it for me? He goes, well, you get your connection with God through keeping kosher. I'm like, well, that's a lot of work. Like, I'd like to be singing and dancing with the Torah. And he said, but you don't have to do that. And I said, well, but I would like to do that. But anyways, I just thought I was, I was struck by just those three things. That's it. Well, those three things come from a Mishnah for those who um, on Friday night, if you say which is like the verse, the Mishnah, the, right, a set of Mishnah from Masachet Shabbat that a lot of people recite between Kabbalat Shabbat and Ma'ariv. Um, in, in that Mishnah, it says, um, you know, three things a man needs to, you know, ask his wife about before uh, let me i can pull it up but basically that's where those three come from yeah that you know but I'll, I'll pull up that that verse or that mishnah but basically that's where it's not saying that those are the only three things that a woman is responsible for but but the mishnah says sort of these are the three these three things um actually i think if i remember correctly it's like there's a bad punishment if you don't do um but i would yeah i would specify that that doesn't mean like to the exclusion of all other things. Like women have other things that they're responsible for. Um, but um, but those three in particular, we, we sort of focus on. Um, I'll, I'll just say about those three while you're trying to find it. If you're I, found, to... I have it, by the way. So if I can oh, okay. I can wait. Um, so, so this is the second chapter of Mishnah Shabbat. Um, and it's actually a, a bad, right? There are three transgressions so that a woman, um, that women for which they die during childbirth. 
because they're not careful with regard to nida, challah, and lighting candles. So that's something, again, that's in what we, a lot of us, actually in our shul, we don't. Um, but in many synagogues, you say that this chapter, the second chapter of Mishnah Shabbat, Mishnah Kala Shabbat in Ma'ariv, that's kind of like a strong, like a very strong statement. But again, that's where that three comes from. It's not to say like, those are the only things that women are doing. Um, so I, I think that there's, there's also like a positive spin to this in terms of, um, Halanida and Halakatner. So these are things that very specifically, um, yeah, I, I'm really glad we looked at that Mishnah. Um, I, I think that um, those are three things that like, if a man were to say, let me, let me count for you your period, you, if you're a woman, you would think to yourself, no, like that seems very silly for you to do when I'm the person hopefully going to the bathroom alone um, and not having you sit there and and let me know if I'm bleeding or not to be crass, right? There's, there's, no, there's no reason for a man to be involved in that. But, and same with Hala, right? It's, no, it's not the man's business whether or not she used enough flour to take Hala to make Hala for, um, for Shabbat and the lighting of the candles, most likely the reason that became a, a woman's uh, mitzvah is because she was home and the husband wasn't even there to know if the candles had been lit. So th- those things, I think if you're, if you're to think about them uh, positively, though there's obviously negative ways to think about the fact that there's only three or why those three, um, that that there is some ownership around those pieces that not only is it a woman's obligation and responsibility, but it means that exactly what Amir did, um, is this for you or for all, for everybody? For you. Are you being serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you oh. just, you mentioned challah. I don't know if everyone knows the idea of something. <laughs> you are kidding or not. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I'll explain. I got, I got it. Um, but that, <laughs> now I lost my train of thought. Um, but that, that unlike what Amir does, which is really get into her business in such a way that he's actually wrong, <laughs> that if she's just allowed to have that as her responsibility, then he should just trust her. And that kind of takes away his, um, his need to, to have to worry about that as a halachic paradigm in his home. What Rabbi Pernick wrote to me, and I, I wasn't sure if he was joking or not, which is why I asked, um, when we're all done with Zoom, the Rye Pernick will no longer be able to teach with me. Um, it will be a lot easier to have these like very discreet comments as opposed to me asking in front of everybody if he was joking. He was not joking. Um, so the idea of separating challah is that if you just make bread, you don't have to, just like, let's say with two cups of flour, you don't have to separate challah. You don't have to take away a piece of the challah to actually be a symbol for, or in some people actually believe as a sacrifice, like we would have done back in the time of the temple to actually make it challah. Challah is a specific kind of bread made because you take away a piece of it as sacrifice. It's not just you know, braided bread that you find somewhere. It, it has a reason for being called challah. Um, and, and the blessing that you, that you separate challah from that which is being baked. So that's what it means to separate challah. It's not just the baking of bread for Friday night, but it's actually the ritual separation of a piece of the dough from that which you're going to be making 
for um, for mozi on Shabbat, and it's a specific amount of flour. The last person I <laughs> I argued, um, not argued, we agreed, but uh, spoke about this in terms of like cups of flour with was actually Josh's sister. Um, in terms of like, is it eight? Is it eight and a half? Is it eight and three quarters? So most people say that it's eight or eight and a half, probably closer to eight and a half than it is to eight. Um, so that's what lehafrish chalan means. Uh, yeah, I just, going into the, the conversations in the chat, I think, right, and this is what I was trying to communicate before, the, it's not that these three mitzvot are the only mitzvot that women have. I think the idea is that these are three mitzvot that are either uniquely or primarily connected with women. So you're right that if if there's no, you know, woman of the house, the man lights candles, Right, which is always fun when you know in Israel when we lived in Israel and like they'd have the people on the street corners giving out like candles and we're like, can I can I have a pair of candles? And they're like, they're like, fine, whatever. Like, it's a mitzvah to like candles. Like, you know, I, you know, my roommates and I like we'd like candles together. Um, so those are things that are primarily associated with women. Um, same with challah, that it's again primarily associated with women, but it's a mitzvah that you know applies to men also. Obviously, nida is different; that that is uniquely. Um, in the realm of women. And I think the, the you know, connection between these three are that these are three things that, again, most typically, you know, women are taking, are, are the ones responsible for taking care of uniquely qualified to be involved in, not for Nita, not for the others. Um, and it's sort of like, to the man, like, this is not your, you know, like, this isn't your job, don't worry, you know, not don't worry about it, but like, kind of stay out of it. Um, and I think it's, and don't worry about it, right? The, the worry. I mean, I mean, not don't worry. Like, just it's the worry yeah. is what gets a mirror in trouble, right? The worrying, so, but yeah, right. So if you trust your wife, to go back to your title, um, if you if you trust that your wife is going to hold by these same laws, then you don't have to worry about it. And you, in fact, you shouldn't worry about it because then it's going to drive you crazy if you're trying to make sure that she's upholding these laws. But if you know that your wife has, it was part of the reason why women take kala classes because they need to know how to do this part of halakha, which again, I shared this story last week, right? There are men learning hilchot nida. It's not like men don't know it and and women do, women need to learn it just like men are learning it. So women take classes before they get married so that they can take on that responsibility without their husband worrying that they don't know how to count or don't know what they're doing. Um, but it is very much so a, a mitzvah that the woman should worry about and be responsible for without her husband. Right. And I think as people touched on in the chat, like often, right, people who aren't always trustworthy are probably naturally less trusting as well. And so, you know, in this case, because Yifat brought up the idea, now Amir is assuming that she followed through with it, even though, you know, he said, not in a good way, but he was like, I'm not comfortable with it. And she was like, okay, we won't do it. And she meant it because she tells the truth. But like Amir just assumed she's not. So it's... um yeah, that trust is like a big issue here. Well, in that moment also where he does all this calculation in his head as if he knows when she had her period, right? The the, the idea of... He, he does, more or less, but... Well, he doesn't. Yeah. It turns out. Well, apparently you're right, I guess, yeah. 
um, that I'm right. Everyone write that down. I was right. Um, that, that, um, there, there clearly is, you know, the, the, the idea of Nita is that you're not bleeding for 12 days. So it's, it's not up to her to say to, him, okay, I've, I'm done with the bleeding part. Now I'm going to, now I'm going to make sure that, you know, I have the seven clean days. Um, and I think that him not knowing when that piece, when, when that shift happened, then didn't allow him to do a correct calculation, which goes back again to her point and to the point we keep on making that it, it's really her responsibility to do the counting, to know her body, to know the halakha and when she should go to mikvah. Um, yeah, to Karen's point, I think what happened is that when he came back from the class trip, he knew that she was in Nida. And so right. he assumed she had just entered Nida and it was, no, she actually had gone into Nida before the class trip. And right, so that's kind of to Karen's point. He, you know, he, big, he knows that when he came back from the trip, she was unavailable. But he didn't know when the second, yeah, he didn't know when the when the period actually started. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he, he, lost, and he lost a lot of points in this episode. Amir went down like a whole lot of notches in this episode. Um, but st- you know, hopefully he will get better. Um, you felt proud of him for asking. Asking what? The rabbi. Karen said that he didn't tell her when he asked the other rabbi. Mm-hmm. Um, right. after davening and oh, oh. which is he didn't but i thought like for him for where he's coming from and who he's been his whole life i felt like it was a big deal that he even asked one other rabbi like i thought that was a stretch for him and that it was gross yeah it's also it's very interesting that he has like specific things that he feels from about <laughs> right and there are other things like if you remember the first season he was sleeping with his ex-wife and you know there there are things that where he's willing to have all these stringencies and really hold to the letter of the law and even be worried if the people around him aren't holding to the letter of the law by the way i don't know that this was clear to everybody and maybe Rai pranik mentioned this and i just don't remember but he invited nati over because the assumption yeah you did mention this or everybody no that was obvious <laughs> Oh, okay. That, well, I'll explain if it wasn't obvious. Um, that that Nati was invited over so that the moment she came home from mikvah, it wasn't assumed that they were going to go straight to the bedroom because they had company. Um, so to try to kind of deter her from from being able to sleep with him if she wasn't if she didn't go to the mikvah at the correct time. Yeah. Um, uh, Rabbi Barbara, were you were going to chime in? With- no, I'm I'm agreeing with everything that Rabbi Schatz is saying, but when um, Yafat suggests that they consult another rabbi. He like goes berserk and says, you know, no, what more are you going to do? Go to another rabbi and another rabbi and another rabbi. And then he goes and asks a rabbi, another rabbi. I mean, it, it's, I don't know. For me, it's the height of his untrustworthiness. Yeah. Agreed. And then, I mean, what's interesting is that he asked the rabbi, the rabbi says, no, that's her, that's her responsibility. And then he doesn't communicate that back to her. He still doesn't trust her afterwards. So, um, yeah, so very, yeah, interesting point. Um, I know there's a bunch of things in the chat, but I see we have three hands. So maybe 
Norm, we'll start with Norm. Uh, Rachel, if you have. I did. Is Rachel, oh, Rachel first? Rachel. Okay, okay, Rachel. It's uh, my comment. The first episode of this season focused on them not touching during her time of Nida. And mm-hmm. since that episode, they're very affectionate with one another. They hold hands. And during this time, in this episode, mm-hmm. I didn't have the sense that that the the lack of physical contact that was such a big emphasis in that first episode seems to not be carried over into the series at all. Either that or every episode we've seen since the first one, except for this one, were during her clean days. And I... Well, this episode, they were touching one another. So if they're touching one another, we need to assume that they were in clean days. But but I think that's the point mm-hmm. I wanted to raise is kind of what's up with the writers that <laughs> Nida makes an appearance at one episode and makes a different appearance, you know, eight or ten episodes later and really isn't seen in between at all. And, and I have a completely different one, which is that, well, I do not want to be defending um, Amir at all in this episode or otherwise, um, I, I am very much aware that everybody, including the late Rav Moshe Feinstein, picks and chooses which halachas they observe carefully and which they choose to ignore. And every Jew does that. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because Amir actually said something um, that made me think like, oh, you could be a really good conservative Jew <laughs> um, where he said, so what if, if a halakha isn't, isn't something that you, that you agree with or doesn't work with your way of life, you're just going to change it when he's talking to you thought about Hilchot Nida. I was like, oh, I, that's, it's a really interesting way of thinking about halakha in modern day that, that the government movement doesn't go all the way to just say, well, we're not going to do that at all. There are, it's, there are modifications around it, obviously, but, um, but it is an interesting way of coming into modernity around halacha, that if Yifat doesn't like the way her body or her mind feels on these pills, she's trying to find a modern way around something that is only coming up in modernity around her body. And that's totally fair. But what Amir is then saying is, no, but there's halacha. Case in point. That like A through Z, we know what to do. We could go to a rabbi and that rabbi might say something different. But we know that the the foundation for all this comes from the place that we're going to listen to. And we could continue going to... We can continue going um, rabbi after rabbi after rabbi to find the answer that we want, but ultimately it's gonna it's going to land back with us in it being traditional halacha. Um, so I caught I caught on to that moment and thought that that was a very interesting way of Amir um, expressing to Yifat how he felt like she was 
engaging with the halacha, even though I don't actually think that's what she was trying to do at all. She was just trying to make it better for her, for herself and for her body. Okay. There are lots of hands. Renee, Rebecca, then Denise. I mean, I also, I felt like Amir was seeking out Rabam that he knew would give him the answers that he wanted to hear. And it, it, I don't know. I didn't seem like if she, when she made that comment to him about, oh, well, why don't we see, talk to some, to another rabbi that she was necessarily going to screen Dafka for a rabbi that was going to agree with her. You know, she didn't say, she didn't say yeah. any specific. So she, it sounded like she was more open to seeing any other rabbi other than the one he spoke to. Yeah. I mean, I do actually think there's also some amount of cultural issues at play that, um, Generally speaking, Sephardi and North African Mizrahi people, um, regardless of, you know, how strict they are in other areas, tend to be very strict when it comes to Nida. Um, and, you know, more so, I mean, Ashkenazim are often strict, but for Ashkenazi, more often it's sort of things fall in line. You know, if you're um, lenient in most areas, you're lenient in other areas and so forth. Um, Sephardim often are particularly strict and maybe it's it's because of that like that mission idea of you know you, you know you'll die in childbirth otherwise and Mizrahi Jews tend to be more kind of superstitious um and, I would and, just feel more comfortable asking certain rabbis certain questions than I would others I mean there's some questions I would only go to Rabbi Schatz about and not one of our other rabbis mm-hmm. so I mean and my dad didn't mention in the chat before the idea of a Selah Harav like in, ideally you should have like your person who you go to and not go rabbi shopping, um, right? But at the same time, it might be, you know, that Amir knows the rabbis that he's going to go to are not going to give leniencies, whereas this rabbi at this shul where he is, he might know, okay, this is a guy who doesn't look smarty. I could be wrong, you know, um, but, you know, he knows he might be more more lenient. And so, and like, and that that's something, you know, to, to the point that Norm um, raised before about, you know, I actually asked him in the chat, you know, like, you know, about examples of like, because I don't think of Rav Moshe saying, like just ignoring pieces, you know, areas of halacha, but there are certain things where he says, um, uh, okay, so yeah, you know, so there are certain things where they say, okay, like this, you know, maybe we're going to be more lenient on, um, not to, not like ignoring halacha, but like we'll be lenient on this particular thing. So I think people do when it, especially when it comes to things that have to do with having childbirth and so forth. Sometimes people are more likely to ask rabbis who they normally wouldn't ask um, to get an answer that they're looking for. Also, and then we can go on, but I think that when you're, when you say that you're going to talk to different rabbis, there's also just certain rabbis, like, I don't know that this was what Renee was getting at, but there are certain questions that I answer because I'm a woman that that Rabbi Klickfeld doesn't answer. Um, and obviously in the more orthodox movements, you know, kind of further right than, than modern orthodoxy, you wouldn't be able to find female rabbis, but you would have Yoetzot Halacha and you would have Rebetzins. You would have, right, you would have, you would have um, women of authority to speak to. And I think that there are, there is something to be said for what Yifat is trying to get at, which is I want to talk to a rabbi who can talk to me about the way that this is working is not working for me. So is there another way that this could work for me? Um, And I think that's totally fair. And maybe she's not looking for a leniency. Maybe she's just looking for someone who understands the scenario better than the dude she went to the first time. 
uh, Rebecca, Denise, and then Debbie and Steve. Um, It's interesting. We were talking about Amir seeming to be so strict. But when Hodaya goes to visit Yifat, she remarks how um, Yifat is being so strict. And, you know, she's trying to, Hodaya is trying to convey to her what, what she had learned and some alternatives or talk to someone else or you count count earlier. And so um, so we think that Yifat has rejected that suggestion, but that seems to be what plants something in her to actually suggest to Amir, oh, maybe we go see another rabbi. There's another way of doing it. So um so Hodaya is the one who kind of uh, who brings this up, and it's interesting. So then, when Hodaya goes back and uh, confronts Asaf, he isn't interested in kissing or touching her. And as a matter of fact, she says it's been two weeks since we've been together. So you sort of wonder: um, is uh, is it uh, purposely or not purposely, subconsciously or not that he's avoiding her? He's kind of put her in this state of nida. Hmm. for two weeks they're not together so it's kind of that contrast interesting I had not put the Nita piece nor the timing piece together with their separation um though that makes all kinds of sense I just saw it as he's trying to get some space um and they live together and so that's a way that's a way of getting space um but he seems to kind of be pushing her away and she seems to try to get closer to then um to to make things kind of spark up again uh but you're right whether or not that's what the character is doing the writers did a really beautiful job of mirroring those two things of separation and um and they're, they're pushing away of one another. And then you actually even have Rayut and Roe who, yeah. who haven't, you know, approached any physical togetherness, but, but at the end they have a, a short kiss. Very so awkward they, kiss. Yeah. Yeah. And they break that, that barrier. My dad pointed out that, it, you know, isn't it ironic? The, the only one enjoying his relationship right now is Nati, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so true. So he was not good with the son, so I am not rooting was, for the relationship. The son loved it. He, he, Nazi was thrilled just playing video games. Like, that's all yeah. he wanted to do is just play video games. Because he was a child, but not child. because he was good with the kid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Denise. Um, okay, so first, just um, a shout out to Rabbi Pernick. I didn't know there was a big picture element to North African traditions and like heightened interest in the mikvah but when I was before COVID I was exploring dating sites right before COVID hit and all these French guys like on their they see you know there's a thing where it says what are you looking for and they're like I'm looking for a woman who will keep Tarat Mishpacha and I'm like 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 that's it but you know like (laughs) and like and like like, why are you looking forward to that? Like, I don't I just, it was like, I totally, not that I'm against it, but I didn't understand why it would be on a man's wish list. And sometimes it was the only thing, you know, so now I have a little more understanding. So that was interesting. That is, that is um, a fantastic window into the from dating world. A wish list that includes <laughs> making kala, practicing Hilchot Nida. Wow. No, he didn't say about- making kala. They only, they all wanted Kisui Rosh, 
and Tarat Mishpacha, that's it. And like one after another. And I'm like, oh, France, they're so sophisticated. No. Yeah, no, I think you're right. So, I think Sparty, Sparty and Mizrahi men, those are big things. Like Kisui Roche and, and Hilfagida. Even if in other areas they're leaning yeah. from, like those, yeah, totally. It's like very much a thing. Yeah, so that was just a big, and now you've sort of put it in perspective, which is kind of cool. So the other thing that I noticed that, um, having a little bit with what Rebecca was describing with Yifat and Horea, but I saw it with Amir, and I feel like I see it with Amir almost every week, where on the outset, like his kind of first level reaction is to dismiss something or to withhold, or, but then privately on his own, he checks things out. Like he went to the rabbi, he looked at things, or like it, when she wasn't looking, he opened the pills and smelled them to see what they were like. Like, I think he has an open heart. Um, his mind, not as much, but his heart, I think, is very open. And, and in each episode, he grows a little. He expands himself a little bit. He steps up where his first impulse was not to step up. Um, so I, and I, I just, I kind of admire him for that. Hmm. Nice. I like that. That's all. Just a shout out to Amir. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Debbie and Steve. So I, I think it's interesting just from a medical perspective that this time of not being with your spouse. So the time of being with your spouse, which you're allowed to be together is the time when the woman is the most fertile. And we've talked before about wasting seed, you yeah. know, so the fact that if she, if they're having sex during that period where there's absolutely no way that she's going to get pregnant, that's kind of wasting it in, in that context. Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge piece of why we do, we observe Nita the way that it's been arranged, you know, the five plus seven that we talked about, right, gets you for most women to, as you say, like the, the top, you know, prime fertility time. And that way it's sort of like, okay, we'll focus on this during that time when, when, um, it's most likely to be successful. And then it's not considered wasting seed the rest of the month, but it's like, you're right. That you you want to, I think the the rabbis want to make sure that you're, you know, the mikvah night and that idea that she's texting and saying, okay, tonight's my mikvah night and coming home. Like, you know, the night where you are most likely to be having sex is at the time of prime fertility. Like that's not a coincidence. Maybe. And that's why Maimonides talks about a custom in his day that I think I mentioned this before that women, women decided to start observing seven plus seven um, on their own. You know, they said, I'm going to do seven days plus seven days. And Maimonides is like, this is a terrible custom and like needs to be spoken out against and rabbis should be giving drushes against this. Like, because it, because it was a form of birth control, essentially. Women didn't want to get pregnant. So he said, we'll do seven plus seven. And then, okay, great. Now, you know, so yes, totally not coincidental. But, but, but also to the point of like a woman knowing her body, that it doesn't always work that way, right? That's mm -hmm. not, that's not how, and so to this whole point of Zerla Vatala and having, you know, wasting seed. If, if you're abiding by halakha to a T and yet the night that old rabbis in a book are telling you that you should have sex, if that's not the same time that you are actually ovulating, then 
it's not considered by the rabbis to be zera levatala, but but it is in a certain way because you aren't having sex at a time where you are going to going to biologically be able to procreate. So I I never I never put those um, terms together, Debbie. But but you're making a very powerful point, which is. I think last week was when I brought up the concept of halachic infertility, which is this idea that for some women, depending on how your cycle works, for some women, the the time frame of hilchot of keeping nidav tarat mishpacha actually works against you as opposed to for you. The idea is that it would work for you, but as we know, not everybody works the same way. So. And that's what Hodaya was trying to say, even right. though you thought wouldn't listen to her, right? Um, right. right. Hodaya was like, yeah, right. Keep in mind, Hodaya is the daughter of Rosh Hashiva. Like her father's a big rabbi. She knows stuff. She's not observant, but she knows she knows what she's talking about. Um, and she's saying essentially that, and Yifat doesn't want to hear it, but right, exactly that idea that like this is intended to make people be able to have children, not be unable to have children. So there's there, you know, and again, some some of these things are are sock that would only be given privately and not publicly, but sock being like a, a rabbinic decision. But it's, you know, a lot of these things, so much depends on the, you know, the woman's body and often, you know, talking to a doctor, talking to a rabbi and a doctor together, figuring out what's, you know, um, what can be done. Yeah. Karen, Karen. You have to unmute though, Karen. I said, I have just three things to say. Okay. One, Amir is gorgeous. And I do like, his look and, and he's very attractive, but he reminds me of a, like a guy, a man who wants to be a good boy. And yeah. so he keeps things and, and he doesn't share whatever. And so that's really a red flag. Number two, um, what I want to say, oh, when, uh, what's her name says, oh, he's not gay. Did that little kiss lead to other things? Or because she just had a little kiss from him, Roy is not gay. I mean, what I think the I think the latter. I think she's like, oh, he's not gay. He kissed me, so he can't be gay. I don't. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Just okay. saying. Okay. I think I think that she thinks that now some kind of sexual relationship is possible. I don't know that she's convinced that he's not gay. I think that she is convinced that if he can kiss me, we can be married and have a sexually fulfilling relationship, which, you know, whether or not that is correct, I think she's, she is convincing herself that it doesn't matter if how he defines himself is gay or, or not. Um, but rather that if he was able to kiss her, that yeah. that means there's something else there. Okay. Mm-hmm. I forgot the third. So oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, Jeff. I, I was just thinking about that kiss. I just think uh, Roy, Roy, Roy is a very, maybe a very sensitive guy, and he sees his friend in distress, and that might all be all yeah. it is. You know, it's. I think he is very sensitive, and and maybe she might get the wrong idea from it, but maybe he doesn't really. You know. Yeah, yeah, it. for sure. I think that's yeah. that's probably true. He's trying to comfort her, and and right. he thinks that by kissing her, that 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 will bring her comfort. That's very sweet. Yes, Rabbi Dan Pernick. Thank you. So <clears throat> I disagree just a little bit with what was just said, because I think I I felt something when she was putting the kippah on his head. Mm-hmm. And there was that physical contact, which was different than what there, it was kind of like, 
okay, will they or won't they? Is that going to lead to something? There was, you know, there was, maybe it's overstating, but like sexual tension at that point. Mm -hmm. So, and I think, yes, he saw that she was hurting and that helped with the kiss. But I think, you know, her putting her hands, you know, it was almost an embrace. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of led to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're trying to figure each other out. Right. And I think that he wants to make it work because it's better for his quote image in his family. If it works. Um, I think that she's trying to make it work because she genuinely has feelings for him and she's devastated that he might not be attracted to her. And so they're both trying to figure out how do I navigate this and how do I try things that might lead me to believe that there's more of a, an opportunity here than, than um, titles might suggest. And I think, I think that, you know, in addition to trying to figure her out, he's trying to figure himself out also. You know, he's like, okay, I know I'm attracted to men. And so that seems to be, you know, that seems to be his primary attraction, but he's sort of figuring out, can I, can I fall in love with a woman? And I think he's not, he's not sure, you know, um, he wants to try, he knows he wants to try because of the social reason, you know, all these reasons, but it's still sort of an open question about whether he really can fall in love with a woman, but he wants to give it a shot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's what Mayer's role also a little bit is, right? He has this friend who is gay, who has a wife and multiple kids and, you know, and so he sort of has that mentor kind of relationship with this guy who's like, no, it's possible, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Norm or Rachel. Um, I have read and also seen in a film about, about 10 years ago that there are quite a few uh, gay men in the Orthodox community, particularly in Israel, who managed to get married and have children, um, even though that's not their primary, primary attraction or whatever. So, um, and I'm sure throughout history, this has been true, not just among Orthodox Jews, but among others as well. Um, so that um, it, it could be possible. Yeah, I think it's it, it was true, unfortunately, until very recently and potentially is still true in some communities where um, if you are if you are considered othered by your community or by your family based on your sexual preference, um, you try to make it work in such a way that you can be accepted and feel welcome uh, in the community or the family that you live in. And unfortunately, I don't think that's so foreign uh, to, to, many, to many communities. And it's, you know, I, we, we work hard at it just in Judaism <laughs> to try to make sure that people who, who come to us, who, whether it's based on sexuality or race or ethnicity, whatever it is that they feel welcome when they aren't exactly like the other, you know, cookie cut out Jews who are, who are in that community. And that's, that's really important. Uh, So I I, I also just want to bring up and I defer to Karen and anyone else who has uh, more psychology training and insight than, than I do that when there is a situation of a gay person in a heterosexual marriage for whatever needs that it does meet, that the gay person is going to feel constrained 
are in a way like they're, it's a way of not being your full self. Mm. And I feel like that becomes very sad for everybody that's involved, that a person is not his or her full self is going to end up depriving not only the partner, but the children and the extended family, because it's an extra sense of burden or guilt or dishonesty that the person is carrying with them. Yeah, for sure. Um, we are going to wrap this up because Temple Betham is doing a Ma'avar ceremony. Um, so I will let Rai Parnik have the last word, but um, what? Okay. Um, but I just, I, I want to point out that I think that we're at a turning point in a lot of these characters, both relationships, but also growth. Um, and so as we see them kind of emerge into whoever they're going to be and whoever they're going to be with, we're going to see some of these pieces, whether it's around communication or intimacy or Judaism, uh, we're going to see some of that shift a little bit. And as someone pointed out, that Nati is, oh, I think it was your dad, that Nati is now the only person who's like in a happy, <laughs> loving relationship, um, that that some of those characters are going to take on um, elements or characteristics that others have had in the past and to see them in different bodies uh, will be an interesting thing um, for us to be able to recognize and, and kind of dive into a little bit more. Rabbi Parnick? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, and I'm happy to stick on the line if, um, you know, anyone who's not going to the TechS wants to wants to chat for a few more minutes. But I think, you know, one topic that we've come, we've talked a lot about in recent episodes is trust, right? And I think trust, right, that's still sort of a, a big piece here. And, and here we're actually seeing a little bit of the way that trust plays out, not just in, you know, regular ways, like getting into an accident, um, but actually the way that it plays out, you know, even in areas of halacha. And I think interesting to think about the way that halacha sort of is saying to men, like certain things just aren't your business. Like, so like certain things, like just don't butt into, like you, if you're going to have a marital relationship, you should be trusting your wife generally. <laughs> and particularly, you know, in these areas that are really, she's the only one who can know what's happening with her body. Um you know, I've, I think as we've spoken today, we've had sort of mixed feelings about Amir. Some people feel like Amir is growing, um, but I think that but trust still attractive. Piece, and apparently people still find him attractive. Um, you know, yeah, but um, yeah, I think it's something, you know, thinking about trust and sort of that intersection of trust and religion. I think it's also interesting thinking about the way that, you know, Ifad doesn't trust Hodaya, even though she's knowledgeable because she's not observant anymore. So there's, there's sort of this, all these different pieces, um, you know, relating to trust going on. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.